You're listening to Inside the Athletic Mind with your hosts, Taylor Cook, Lauren Williams, and Margaret Jennings. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Athletic Mind, where we dig deep and shed light on the mental side of sports for female athletes and coaches by having open conversations about mental health, mindset, and performance. Oh, okay. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I thought oh, this, is your, this is your guest, so I thought like you were just going to take the reins <laughs> on this one. <laughs> sure. I own her. She is mine. Yes. This is my guest. <laughs> I can. I can. You're right. I can. Three can. under the bus there. Just, yeah. Oh, MJ, you know me. You know me more. I do. Than I do know, By the way, know. you're going to be doing the intro. Have fun. <laughs> Three, two, one. <laughs> All right. So today we are fortunate enough to have Corey Chevry. She's been an assistant coach with the senior women's national hockey team. Uh, just wrapped up a gold medal performance out at the Olympics. So really looking forward to just having a conversation with her. Again, the focus of this podcast is to get inside the athletic mind, kind of look at some of the thoughts and beliefs and emotions we have in in terms of our participation in sport. So kind of looking to see what the last year of her life has been like getting ready for the Olympics uh, and kind of how things have played out for her as the team pursued the gold medal. And then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. So welcome Corey. Thank you. This is great. I love this. I haven't been, I don't think, on a podcast recently with this many people, so it's awesome. Yeah. A whole gaggle. Gaggle gals. <laughs> 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 Anywho, so, okay, so why don't we start with when the team captured the gold medal, like in that moment, right, where you saw everything that you had guys had worked towards for the last year and then some kind of come to fruition. Like what, what went through your mind in those moments? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, obviously I was watching uh, from TV. So um, it was just, it was kind of one of those surreal moments where you would put in all the work leading up to, and, you know, the Olympics is about finding, you know, your best uh, in that moment. And, and kind of rising up to to the challenge. And I think that, you know, the players, they did what they needed to do. The coaches did what they needed to do. So it just kind of was a full circle moment of everybody kind of coming together. And our goal was finally achieved. And, you know, for women's hockey and and kind of the state of it currently, I know that all of our players were waiting for this moment uh, for so long with, you know, all the, the different leagues kind of coming and going over the past four years. So this was a really special moment for them and, and something that, you know, we obviously prepared for, for a really long time, past four years, really. Yeah. And building on that, you know, like you said, past four years, uh, and you mentioned that you were watching from the TV. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on why that was? Yeah. So it was just really bad timing. Um, I ended up getting COVID in January and, you know, I thought, oh, this is, this is okay. I'm, you know, I'm still going to get there. I'm going to be able to, you know, produce negative tests, which I think I've produced probably 250 over the past, you know, two years. So I was like, this is, you know, going to be okay. And then it was just a race against the clock. And I missed the first, um, I missed the first plane and then I missed the second charter. And I was like, okay, this is really getting down to the wire. And I had to produce uh, four negative tests and they were just kind of jumping all around. So um, at the end of it, kind of the decision had been made for me to stay over in Canada. And, um, and at that point, obviously pretty devastating and heartbreaking news. But uh, once I got back to Nova Scotia, I was just like, okay, it's time to work. It's time to roll my sleeves up. How can I help? How can I make an impact from afar um, so that we win this gold medal? So that was kind of my focus through it all. And I think that, that really helped me. I just kind of, you know, changed my sleeping habits a bit. I was on a nap schedule instead of a a sleep schedule and I was available. I was on call for the coaches. I was on call for the players and still able to, uh, you know, have video sessions with the players and, and communicate with the coaches probably twice a day. 
uh, I made all the meetings and I did my parts of the presentations for the meetings. So uh, it was kind of business as usual, to be honest. And I think that if we hadn't have gone through COVID and done the virtual type of camps and stayed engaged and stayed connected throughout all of it, I think that it might've been a little bit trickier to make that happen with ease, but because we were just so used to it, it was like, okay, this is what I need to do. This is how we'll do it. And, um, you know, I thought we executed having someone from far away, uh, help out and, and be there through it all. So it was a different games experience, but it was pretty cool still. Talk about team first mentality there. Like what a trooper to, to go through all of that and, and to be so excited and prepped to head over to Beijing and then get stuck with COVID and having to stay back in Canada. Um, I'm curious, like what was your mindset at the outset of all of that, like going through that situation and having to isolate and, and getting down to the last, the last minute and realizing that you weren't going to be able to, to go on the trip and, and be with the team. Yeah. I mean, I think it was definitely a roller coaster of emotions. Some days were good. Some days were bad. Um, you know, it was a waiting game. It was, it was groundhog day. It was wake up, go to breakfast, go get tested, get tested at another location and then wait for the results. And so there was a lot of waiting. There was a lot of kind of stress and anxiety. So I think it was just about managing all of that, um, you know, with kind of the work that we do, uh, with the high performance group and Susan, obviously I've been working with her for the past three years, I think four years now, um, you know, I, I couldn't have really gone through that. I don't think if I hadn't have had kind of that mental preparation training and, and all the work that I've done in the group and, and on my own as an individual. And I think that, um, it was obviously tough and not ideal, but in those moments, like you talked about team first, and that was one of our main priorities with the national team is, you know, we really put a high, uh, price tag on team first above anything else, because, you know, with, I'm sure you've all had your experience with, you know, wanting to make the Olympic team as, as a player going through, it's all about you. It's all about trying to get on that team and your position is never really secure. So it's a constant tryout. So we wanted to kind of eliminate that type of mindset and bring out a team first mindset to kind of get the best group together that we possibly could. And so, you know, I never really thought about that team first mentality from a coach's perspective um, this deeply until you kind of brought it up because that's the way that our staff operated. That's the way that our team operated. Um, you know, no job is too big, no job is too small. And so that's kind of, you know, where my mentality had to be. And that, like I said, there were, hard days, but, you know, knowing that we were, we had a goal in mind and we had a focus point, um, it just made it that much easier to stay, stay engaged and stay on task with the team. You had, you had mentioned, we're still working on this. There's three of us. So sometimes it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, where's come you, from that? I'm up you. Um, just to follow up to that. So like you said, you know, like, especially those first few days, it was a waiting game. There were a lot of elements that were out of your control. Right. And like the stress and anxiety was a bit like a roller coaster and you relied on like some of the high performance training stuff that we do just out of curiosity, if you could paint a picture for people, like, do you have some specific examples for things that you turn to like in those moments where you were getting stressed or anxious about, you know, the uncertainty of it all that really helped you. And that's not to say it's going to help everyone, but I think it, it is helpful to provide some examples of the kind of stuff that you can do in those moments. Yeah. I mean, I think that something that really helped was staying engaged with loved ones and being able to chat with people who are close to you, who kind of have the inside scoop as to what's going on. So they can kind of, you know, sometimes it's hard to settle your own mind. I mean, I think that's what we're all trying to work towards is in those big moments, being able to settle our minds so that we can perform on demand. And so sometimes that was hard to do because even though I think that I'm an expert in isolation, um, I've done it a lot over the past two years. Um, there's still those moments where, like you said, you're, you're stuck in your hotel room, 
Um, you can't control anything besides what you do inside those four walls. So um, needing the support of other people was, was really crucial for me. And I met with Susan a couple times, MJ, I met with you and Jess a couple times, and that was really, really beneficial. Um, journaling was really helpful uh, to just kind of get my thoughts down on paper instead of my mind telling me different stories that, you know, would just send me down another rabbit hole. Um, I had to ask myself, you know, what is true in this situation? What can you do? Uh, how can you kind of make the best use of this time? And that's also another thing that I did was I kept busy. I, I dove deeper into concepts that we worked on through the year. I dove deeper into games that I've already watched and assessed. And I tried to pick out small, minute details that you know, I could relay to the other coaches that were like, hey, watch for this, watch for that. I really noticed this when we play this opponent. Um, so I just tried to stay busy as well and kind of get some work done and, and prepare. And part of my role with the with the national team was uh, the scouting plan. So I would be responsible for, um, you know, all the other teams' schedules, when they're practicing, when they're playing, who we're sending as coaches, what the transportation would look like. So that was a big job that I focused on as well during my isolation was just getting the scouting plan done and, and, you know, getting all of my jobs ready ahead of time so that I kind of knew that there was a potential that other people were going to have to fill in my roles for the first few days until I got there. Um, and so I just wanted people to feel prepared uh, when they got there. So those were some of the things that, that I really paid attention to or just reaching out to loved ones and friends, um, journaling, and then really taking a deeper dive into like our strategy, our concept as a team and how I could help prepare the staff who may not have had as much time as I did waiting in the hotel room. So um, those were some of the things that I tried to really stay in control of. I think that's a really interesting kind of tunnel to go down, right? And talk about this idea of settling your mind and of athletes needing to be able to settle their mind before the big moments that we all see when they play out on TV or when we see them the next morning on Instagram reels or whatever. But I think a piece that a lot of people struggle with or even forget to acknowledge is being able to settle your mind away from all of that stuff and knowing that the tools that you can use to prepare for those moments can and should also be used in other areas as well. How did you notice that sort of transition taking place for you as, as you moved away from focus on the big moments to focus on being prepared for the, the small moments that ultimately, I mean, we all know they add up to the big things, right? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's something that I've really tried to focus on as a coach is that we, you know, we want our athletes to be prepared. We want them to have that strong mental mindset. Um, we want them to be physically prepared. We want them to be well rested. And about halfway through my coaching career with Hockey Canada, I decided that I was going to take a similar approach. So, you know, I need to get eight hours of sleep a night. Um, we know that the coaching world can be daunting. We know that you could stay up till two or 3 a.m. going down a rabbit hole of video. Um, but I think like what I was really happy about was just narrowing my focus as to what I wanted to do with the video, focusing on that, doing a little bit at night, but then I'm also an early riser. So getting up in the morning and finishing kind of my work off at that time um, a big part for me too, was working out every day. Um, that was always a, a big piece to our, even our entire staff. If we went to, you know, St. Louis or we went to, um, you know, we were in Pennsylvania, um, we would always try to make sure we had gym time at the, at the hotel for the staff, because it's just so important to have that, that time to yourself, um, and so for me, like, I felt like all of those pieces added up um, to overall success because I took that kind of athlete mindset approach and then kind of shifted it to a coach's, a coach's world because I just think like 
we need to be able to be fresh in the morning. We can't be foggy. We have to be well rested. We have to be able to make decisions on the fly, on the bench for what the situation presents. Like who's going out after a goal for goal against? Who's going out after PK power play? Who goes out after TV timeout? Who's playing four on four? Who's playing three on three? What if two of our four on four players are in the bench and we need to send somebody like there's countless things that you're thinking about while you're on the bench. And so like taking that athlete approach into the coaching world was really, really important for me and something that I really tried to focus on because it's what made those high pressure moments not feel as, um, as terrifying because I knew I was ready. I knew I was prepared and I was fresh and I was ready to make decisions. So um, I think that, you know, for me, that's something that I really tried to focus on through my journey with Hockey Canada. And I felt like it really helped. I'm curious, you were saying that you had more of a nap schedule as opposed to a sleep schedule. Um, What did it take for you throughout the Olympics like what what was the role that you were playing from home obviously like working with the players and and going through video and stuff but like what like kind of like explain like what those days looked like like just how kind of draining it could have been for you from home not being able to be there but still playing such a major role within the team yeah so I had I had chatted with someone right after um, I had found out the news, which was awesome. Hockey Canada set me up with someone to talk to kind of immediately. And we went through um, just kind of what a schedule could look like for me. And so we kind of built it out. So as you know, um, our games were all at 12 PM noon in China. So in Nova Scotia, it's 12 hour difference. So it was midnight here. So what would normally happen on like a game day, it's kind of weird because it was like a game day, but not. So I would usually be up and I would try to go to sleep around 8.30 p.m. my time, which would be 8.30 a.m. their time. And then I would wake up around like 11 p.m. And so I was up usually an hour uh, to 45 minutes before the puck drop because uh, usually I, I had already chatted with some of the players like, uh, before the game, there's a couple players I would always have a pregame chat with. So I would chat with them, then I would go to bed, then I would wake up for the game, watch it live, and then I would be making notes, obviously, through the game. Um, and then I would stay up for about another two to three hours because I would chat with some players after the game. I would chat with the coaches after the game. And then I would go to sleep um, until about 6.45 a.m. So I'd go to sleep at like 3.30 or wake up at 6.30 and then go to the team meeting at 7. And so then, like, which would be 7 a.m. my time. So then I would uh, usually meet with some players if they wanted to do video after that 7 p.m. meeting for them. And then I would try to have an afternoon nap. Um, And then I'd basically be sleeping at the same time as them a little bit. And then I would wake up you know, around four five or six. And usually I had a chat with one of the coaches every single morning we would chat because he was kind of doing my role over there as well as his role. So we would talk about kind of what we talk about the game. We talk about um, different strategies. We were also both on PK. So we would talk about that a lot. And then on, on off days when they had practice, I would try to sleep during practice so that I would be available before and after um, so that no one needed to contact me while they were on the ice. So um, I would try to sleep there and I just kind of rolled like that. It was like, okay, I'll sleep three hours here, wake up for six hours, sleep three hours here, wake up for six. And it, it changed day by day. Um, it was exhausting, but it was so rewarding because it was like, I was waking up at like 5 a.m. to still pitch blackout. And I'd be meeting with one of the players who like wanted their ritual like chat you know, their, their chat the night before a game or whatnot. So I've been like, you know, how we always use the word, word like silver linings. I, I called it my gold lining the whole tournament so that I was kind of manifesting that we were going to win. Um, and so the gold lining for me was that I, I got to talk to the players 
pretty consistently and, and almost every single, well, every single day I talk to quite a few of them. So usually at an event, not saying that, that we don't get a chance to chat with the players, uh, but it does get very busy. And then with COVID, I know that they were kind of spread out around the village um, and we weren't really supposed to be visiting people or anything like that. So I felt like it was really cool for me because I got to, from like outside looking in, but like being involved, I got to see kind of what their mood was, how could I help them? And a big approach for us was even from January 1st on, um, we didn't want to change our game. Like we didn't want to make big changes to our, to our, our strategy. We didn't want to make huge changes to each individual player. So when I was looking at video for our players, I would be like, okay, what's one thing that I can give this player that is just a helpful habit and, and, and nothing that they need to change about their game, just something for them to focus on for that game. And ultimately if they do it, it'll help them. Um, so that was kind of my mindset when building those video sessions, uh, for different, different players, because it's about making them feel good at the Olympics. It's not about changing anything because we've done all the work, the work is done. It's just now about execution. So, um, that's, that's kind of the, the role that I took. Um, and it was, it was, a my mom did, did it basically the same with me. She like watched all the games live with me which was kind of cool. And we were both, once the Olympics were over, we were both exhausted. We were like, oh my God. <laughs> okay, now it's time to sleep. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really, really like cool experience. And I know it's probably really close to home right now, but I think looking back on this experience in two, three, four years time, I'm going to be like, wow, that was like, that was really crucial. That was important for me to go through. Well, and that's the interesting thing, right? Because we talk about it often that like our attention and our time are limited resources, right? Like it's a currency and we have to be selective about what we invested in. And I think there's a lot of people that would hear that, right? Like, oh, I slept for three hours and then I woke up at, you know, 11 and then I would go to sleep from three to six. And then I was up for all the, like people would be like, wow, that's a lot. And it would be easy for people to look at that and be like, okay, like that's overwhelming. And when we feel that anxiety and the stress around it, it's just going to further drain our resources versus yeah. like the approach you took, which was I'm going to do whatever I can to help. Right. And like that energized you and that motivated you because you're focused on what you could control and the impact that you could have. And in the moment, like, sure, you were tired, but it was manageable to you because it was worth your investment of energy and time. And you were consciously yeah. choosing to invest in what you wanted to versus yeah. getting overwhelmed by just the craziness of it all, being stressed and anxious. And then again, mm -hmm. just further draining your resources. So it's interesting how that that mindset can impact our ability to have the impact we really want to. Yeah, it was. Um, and I think something maybe I, I missed along the way too, is just being a coach of the national team, like just like a player, like you have to be extremely disciplined. Right. And sometimes I, I almost put discipline ahead of motivation. Cause you know, my motivation probably would have said, ah, it's, it's too early. Ah, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Ah, I'm tired. But it was like that discipline that was like, no, this is what you do. And this is, we do this, we do that, we do this. And this is how we stay engaged. So the motivation was there because I wanted to win the gold medal and I wanted these players to win and I wanted our staff to win, but really like the discipline to get up and do it all over again was like, I think something that you people sometimes miss out on because I feel like there's days where you don't want to do your job, right? There's days when you don't want to go to work. There's days when you, you know, don't want to go to the park for three hours with, with your two little ones. Right. But it's that discipline that, that gets you there that you can bank on. You can remember like everything we had to do this year, like prepped me for that moment of, that nap schedule, like literally everything we did this year was like so helpful to get me to, Hey, like, this is easy. This is just what we do. This is some days it's hard. Some days it's not. It's, and then obviously like getting to chat with the players was super, super rewarding. Cause that was something that, you know, you take for granted when you're with them every single day. Like, 
those little chit chats on the ice and walking out to the ice and in the dressing room or in the video room. So it's, it was, it was pretty surreal to be able to still go business as usual from afar. And, and I really think that that discipline is a key, key, key factor. What do you think's behind that discipline? Or maybe some people might think of the word commitment, right? Like, so even when the motivation's not there, you are doing what you know needs to be done. And you're right. I think that's where a lot of people fall short because we all come against that resistance. Like for you, what is behind that discipline? So in those moments where you're like, oh, shit, I'm tired. I don't want to get up. Like, what is the why that's making you get out of bed? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was the level of impact that I could have with the players. Um, you know, I, I think that if I ever questioned my impact before the Olympics, I don't question it now because I realized how much I can help these players. I realized how much I could help the staff from afar and still kind of be there in the moment. So, I mean, for me, it was, it was just having that impact and, and seeing that, Hey, like, you know, the players are reaching out, they want to meet, they, they obviously have that bond to me that, um, that, you know, maybe we all took for granted when they thought I was going to be at the Olympics. And then when I wasn't, it was like, oh, for me, I took for granted that I'm going to be on the bench and I'm going to be there. And then for them, maybe it was like, oh, like, you know, what about our pregame talks? And what about our postgame talks? And what, like, what about all of this? So it was, you know, it was just really, it was my why was for the people, like it was for the people who were over there. So it was, it was easy to stay disciplined for them, to be honest. It was, it was a pretty cool experience. I mean, even though I would have loved to be there more so than being at home, it was still really cool. Well, I think like, that's the power that comes with the team first mentality. Right. And I think like you touched on it. I think there's a long standing or there was a long standing, like I'm there, I'm competing against these people. Like I have to be better than them in order to earn my spot on one team against thousands of athletes in our country in the country's most popular sport. Like it's a very competitive environment, but it's the team first. And I think it's, it's about team first. That doesn't mean that you have to be like entirely self-sacrificial. What it's doing is it's changing the mindset from like a competitive environment to a united environment. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like kind of what you're touching on is that's what drives that commitment and desire or discipline is that it's not, just about you in a weird way. And I don't know if that's mm -hmm. just common in team sports or that's like an integral part of like a successful culture or mm -hmm. what that is. I don't know what you guys think on that. Well, I think the, the difference there is that when you have a united culture, you can still be competitive, but it's not at anybody else's expense when you are competitive, right? Whereas when you're not united, it's very much, I am going to succeed at this so that I look some better than somebody else. Or so that coach sees me favorably in X light and sees somebody else not so favorably, right? But that united kind of, I like that word a lot, MJ, thank you, <laughs> really does bring together the sense of like, yes, we can be competitive, we can push, push each other, but at the end of the day, it is for a common goal, which maybe is not in view when you don't have that kind of united team feeling. When you are a bunch of individuals, the, the goal is to make the team. And that's an individual thing. But when you're a united group, it's to make the best possible team out of a group of individuals. And then beyond that, to win a gold medal at the Olympics, which pushes you so much farther than just, oh, hey, my name's on the roster. Yeah, we, um, I think that's something that, you know, from the leadership, our leadership group, the staff, the coaches, um, you know, I think that's something that we are really proud of is the way that this culture has shifted. Um, you know, our, our team slogan was our way and it was our way through worlds and it was our way through the Olympics. And, you know, we spent the year defining what that meant. And, you know, for our group, 
it was, I, I think I said it already, but there was no job too big or too small. If we needed someone to be on the PK, they were happy to do it. If we needed someone to be on the power play, happy to do it. If we needed someone to serve a penalty, they were happy to do it. Um, and it's, it's not even that they were happy to do it. They were willing to do it and they wanted to do it um, because this group was just so special. I mean, even if you think about the taxi squad, like the taxi squad wanted to come over and be there to help us if we ran into COVID issues. Um, and, you know, and that's, you know, we talk about our group of 50 because that's all the staff, all the players, all the centralized players who, you know, didn't, weren't successful in making that final roster, like all 50 were a part of it all like being a good teammate. You know, I love what you said about doesn't mean that there's no competition. Like we talked about being a good teammate as pushing each other in practice. So if Emma Malte doesn't go her hardest against Marie-Philippe Poulin, you're not being a good teammate to Poulin, who is going to get that pressure from somebody else on the American team when we play them. So we created a very safe, inclusive, competitive team first environment that obviously, I mean, you've seen, you've, you've seen in our world's uh, gold and then obviously in our Olympic gold, like these teams are probably completely different than what we've ever seen growing up as players wanting to be uh, as a part of this team. Um, and it, it truly is a special group and, and, you know, it's a big testament to our leadership group who has really kind of changed, changed the tides in, in this program and have made it a more inclusive and, and less scary environment to be a part of. I, I remember one of our NCAA players coming in and saying that she felt welcome from the moment she got there and it was her first camp with us. And, um, and that she was, she was never uh, intimidated by any of our, by any of our uh, players. So, you know, that's, that's the type of culture that, that Hockey Canada has moving forward. And, you know, it's, it's, it takes time to build that and it takes years and it, it, it's, it's fine. It's here. And, and I think that that'll be the, the culture moving forward. So it's, this group is just so special. Who we got? Who we got? I'm probably going to go a little bit <laughs> off topic here. Uh, I was going to ask actually a little bit about like what you think goes into creating, creating that type of culture and being able to, to sustain it. Um, but you kind of already answered that a little bit in terms of like, it's team first, everybody's on the same page. Like there's one united goal that everybody is willing and able to go and work towards. And, and it's a healthy environment. Like you've created that vulnerability and trust and that's like psychological safety with within the group. So I think you kind of already answered that, but, um, I was, we were talking in one of the, one of the earlier episodes about um, the differences between like team Canada versus like team Finland or team Sweden and stuff. And, and the preparation that goes into getting to that Olympic stage. Um, I'm curious what your opinion is. Obviously we've seen a huge increase in the competition at the Olympics. I know there's still quite a big gap between like Team Canada, Team USA versus everybody else that attends. But what what is your opinion on how we can you like as a as a united group of not Team Canada, Team USA, but as female hockey players, elevate those those the development in other countries like Finland and Sweden and even Japan and China who showed up and played and, and won games this this year, which was huge. Yeah, I think that it all comes down to investment in the women's the women's game. I mean, we saw it with Team Sweden. Um, you know, they they were they were back in the Olympics, and you know they had missed some time on in uh, Pool A for a while. Uh, you know, they they had a loss, and and it, it unfortunately bumped them down. But the thing is, is like we need to invest in women's hockey and. I think you're seeing it. You're seeing it from Team Japan. You're seeing it from Team China. When people start to put resources, when people start to share information, when people start to care about women's hockey, um, you start to reap the benefits of that. And I think that, you know, the more women that we can get playing in all of the other countries, like I've never been a part of 
you know, I, I've, I've heard a lot about, uh, you know, coaches from Canada, um, skills coaches, mentors going over to other countries and, and helping grow the game in other countries. I've never been a part of doing that um, necessarily yet, but I think that that's just so important. It's like when countries find the magic recipe, and I'm not saying that we've found it or that the Americans have found it, but when you find something that works, it's about sharing that information too. Like I'm sure that, you know, if you look at, if you look at speed skating in the Olympics, like I'm sure that people want to know what the Netherlands are doing and what they're doing differently over here. I mean, we obviously did an amazing job in speed skating this year at the Olympics, but it took time. It probably took coaches uh, sharing information from other countries um, to help. And I think that that's a big piece of it too. Like, you know, I, I know for, for Finland, a lot of those women play in the Swedish league. So they don't centralize. Um, whereas Canada and the U S centralize and that, and you know, we may be going down a different route in the future with that. If we get a women's pro league too, because you can't pull your players from the women's pro leagues um, to centralize because those, those teams need to make money they're likely their best players. You want to keep them kind of in there. And, and you look at the NHL, they don't centralize. They stay with their club teams um, up until, I mean, unfortunately, we haven't had the NHL players in the Olympics the past two years. Um, but the thing is, is like, you know, what what is the magic recipe? How do we spend more time together? How do we put more resources in? I think that that's key in sharing information. People like as coaches, you know, as players, it's like we watch other people. What are they doing? How do they do that? Um, how, you know, I have people reaching out to me being like, how did you get Team Canada to play that way? And it's like, you know, sharing that information um, and and helping out other people, because I think that at the end of the day, like we don't want those articles coming out that women's hockey shouldn't be in the Olympics. Like we want other teams to be better. We want other teams to invest in it you know like i think about you know one of the one of the, the the was it the 92 nba dream team that was in the olympics and they were crushing people by like 50 points and it's like hey now like there's other countries who are beating the u.s olympic team sometimes um but you know like you we, we have to work towards the entire world um elevating their game and investing in their game and uh, and helping them too. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's on those associations and those countries to invest. And it's, I think it's also on people who have the recipe to, uh, help and, and help with that educational piece and, and give them tips and, and just get them to where we want them. Cause we want competition too. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, we don't want to blow everybody out. I know that this, this Olympics, you guys are probably like, there is no competition other than the Americans, but it's, it wasn't that way in at worlds, right? Like we went down to nothing against Finland and we went down to nothing against the Americans in the gold medal game. And like, you know, and our game against Switzerland, I think was five, nothing or four, nothing at worlds. And now, you know, it's 11, but, um, but like, that's, that's us making progress too. Like we can't stall because you guys aren't where we are. So we just got to keep going as well. And if we keep going, we're forcing people to level up with us. So um, it's a long-winded response, but it, it takes a lot and it does take money and it does take resources. Mm, absolutely. So. It definitely takes a village and the village is a little bit bigger than obviously a village. It's, it's across <laughs> multiple countries. So but yeah. it's interesting that you bring up the centralization because that's also one thing that we were talking about um, because there is different preparation times for different countries, right? Like Canada is able to centralize. So is the U S but teams like Finland, for example, they get together one month in advance and that's their, that's their like quote centralization time. So we were kind of asking the question, like, should there be, um, like international regulations around the prep time that teams have before going into the Olympics to actually present a, fair playing field like what are your thoughts on that yeah I mean that could go down a rabbit hole um so I'll keep this very top level here but 
the thing is, is like we, there's no standard regulation across women's hockey right now. Like the, the teams over in Europe have leagues to play in. We don't, we don't over here. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I could see that being the case if there was sustainable leagues for everybody to play in. And, and I think that that's, I think that that's what everybody's working towards is like, okay, so our sustainable leagues will happen then we don't need to play we don't need to centralize they can play in their leagues all the way up too and you know and then we we kind of go from there um so i mean right now yes i'm sure that some of the other countries would love to centralize for the whole year um and it it's in my opinion like it's beneficial i mean it's you do spend a lot of time together um so you kind of get that ability to like you know I don't know what, I don't even know what it's called, but it's like the norming and the storming and the performing. I don't know what it's called, but something like that. Um, but you definitely get those opportunities, spending that much time together to uh, work through those bumps and those hiccups and those kinks. So, I mean, I can't speak for other countries. I can say that I loved the experience. I thought it was super cool. And for me as a coach, like it made me a better coach. Like I am 100% a better coach coming out of centralization than I was walking in. And um, I am, I, I hope that we get to centralize again because it's, it's a really, really awesome experience. Is it any different on the men's side though? Like it's, it's up to the individual countries in terms of like what that Olympic prep looks like or is it more standardized on the men's side? Because like we said, right? In North America, the guys only they don't really centralize because they're playing in their own leagues as well. I'm not sure. I was just, that's the question. <laughs> we might have lost her again. Anyways. Yeah, oh no. Corey, come back. Mm-hmm. You're, you're frozen looking deeply into the computer. <laughs> Who, me? There, she's back. Oh, well, I can... oh, there we go. You were like this. <laughs> I was like, did my question anger you that well, much? No, you're, this, is, this is what I heard. This is what I heard. You didn't, you didn't comprehend that? No. I, it's okay. I heard it's, something it's about fake. the... I heard something about the men, and that's all I heard. It wasn't a great question anyway, so it's probably faded. I thought it was a good question. <laughs> no, I think it's a great question. Well, no, you need to ask but again. Interesting. Go, go, Well, go. I have a, a better question to ask, actually. Okay, okay, ask I think it. I forgot it, but... Um, well, it's interesting because you were saying, right? Like, with the Olympic program, it's this idea of, like, team-first mentality, right? Like, our way. And it doesn't mean that there's not competition. Like, you still have Maltese going as hard as she can against Poulain because that's what's going to you know, maximize the performance of your team. And it's almost like, is that the approach we need to take on an international level to grow the game, right? Like that team first mentality, because like you and I have witnessed it on the coaching side. Like sometimes people hold their cards close to their chest. Like every system and tactic they have is one big secret because everyone has like a special way to do things. But really like it's all the same stuff, just painted with a different brush. Right. So Um, but like part of it is just opening the door to expand the game. And then the other thing is with the leagues, right? Because there's a lot of talk about with the NHL, the sport grew in a lot of the European countries more when their best players came over to play in the NHL. So it's not just about like sending coaches and skill instructors there. Part of it is if we had a league where the world's best players could come in what we know is the best women's hockey countries right now, Canada and the U S if we had a league where those players could come in, learn, absorb, be a part of that culture, and then be able to take that back and grow the game that way. Like, do you see that as something that would, would help grow the women's game moving forward? Yeah, I 100% think that, I mean, we see it in the modern day workspace that diversity is so important. Diverse experiences are so important to any kind of uh, high performance, uh, workplace. So I think that when you think of it from the player's perspective, it, it, it's, if they come over here and they've never lived in North America, that's a diverse experience for them. That's something that they can bring back, uh, to their club teams or to 
their coaches or other players or even just being that role model of going to another country to play. It's like, hey, now you're paving the way for other players where like, hey, I want to do what she did. She went over there. And I think that that's kind of my experience as a player. Like when I was growing up in Nova Scotia, we didn't have the PWHL to play in. I was playing on the Pictou County, you know, midget double A girls hockey team. And so like, you know, it was, I made a decision with obviously my family's support to come over to Ontario and play. And I think that that made me the player that I was. And, and, you know, I was able to bring that kind of compete and that type of culture and that type of every day is hockey day um, back into the university that I went to and, and just the different players that I played against. And so I think that it's so important. And then other people kind of followed my steps too. Then you see like the players who are younger, like the Jill Saunier's, the Blair Turnbull's leaving, not saying it's great to leave your home province to go play somewhere else, but sometimes it's, it, it's what has to be done. And now, you know, now we're seeing like great hockey teams and, and great women's teams in Nova Scotia that young girls can be a part of and play on. And, and, you know, it, it does take those kind of pioneer trailblazers to, to go out and find the information that's out there and bring it back and, and help grow the sport. So 100%, I think so that's something that I, I really missed about the CWHL was I remember we had a Finnish player in our league. We had a Swedish player in the league. Um, and I remember how cool that was. I was like, wow, I've never, I, ne- I never really played international hockey uh, for the national team. So I was like, this is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I think that that's just as important as the the coaching aspect of it because players want to follow what players are doing and like good players want to follow what good players are doing. And I'm not saying that, hey, if they come over to North America, they're a good player because we've had tons of great players, two of them on this call, go over to Europe and play over there as well and get a diverse experience. And now you guys probably have so much information on, hey, how does this league get better? Hey, how does the team that I'm playing on get better? And how can we like change little things or change the narrative or even just the language that we use um, to help the global sport of women's hockey grow? So um, I think that there's there's so many different ways you can do it. And I think that being creative with it, uh, being solution based and not just saying, ah, we can't do that. It's a it's a plane ride away. You know, it's a plane ride over the Atlantic Ocean away. Like we just got to get rid of the excuses and and figure out how to how to help, how to do it. I was just going to say, like, I think that that has to be one of the, the things that I'm starting to see a little bit with women's hockey now, because with like the, the CWHL folding and then all of these national team players from Canada and the U S coming together to form the PWHPA and trying to work with, people like Billie Jean King and, and finding that funding has been amazing to see, right? Because like when you are on the outside of the national programs and you don't get to see um, that intense rivalry up front, getting to see those players work together on something the way that they have been is absolutely amazing. And I think if, those women who play on arguably one of the biggest rivalries in the sports world. Like I don't, I don't really think that you can say that Canada U S is not a huge rivalry because it is, it always has been. You can see those people come together to work towards the same goal in the sport of women's hockey. I think that there is so much to be learned from that type of cooperation and understanding that it's not about having a scarcity mindset that just because one group gets better doesn't mean that the also group the other group can't also get better right so we just need to find a way to move away from this like oh well if i give away resources to somebody else that means that i'm losing something and that's just not the truth at all mhm Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. It's like if the rest of the world can see Canada, US, who probably hate each other the most in women's hockey, working together towards a common goal, I think that we can all 
kind of roll our sleeves up and work towards something. So it's a really, really good point. And it's obviously for the betterment of the entire sport in general. So, I mean, I, I hope that there is a league soon because um, these women have been working so hard, uh, whether it's in the boardroom or going to these showcases every weekend or doing the small group stuff and working in their hub cities to, you know, get better and not lose momentum. And, um, you know, they, they deserve it. They, they're, they're professional through and through. Um, I've, I've, you know, I've witnessed it for the past two years, how professional these women are and, um, how serious they take the sport. So it's, I just, I hope that uh, one is coming soon and, and uh, that'll be really awesome to see. And then be cool to get, you know, obviously some international players coming over and playing in it as well, which would be awesome. If we are able to get a league going back home, that's sustainable for, for everybody, then that would be something that might actually bring me back from Europe, honestly. Um, But like uh, my agent actually sent me uh, a tweet from, Chris Boda yesterday and he said to expect a new women's pro hockey league to begin play later this year PWHPA led league will feature Olympians plus other top players major brands and networks are partnering and there will be strong support from select NHL teams so there's definitely something coming on the horizon which is super exciting to hear well yeah I mean you look at it right and and like we said like North Americans are going to these countries that still need the development because there's not a league here, which just is kind of crazy, right? I suppose there is a league, but a united league. Yeah, I don't. Know. There is a league. I don't. Know. We need it. Really we need it. We you need it. Can you share some so, insight on that front? Because I'm pretty far removed. Yeah, I mean, I think the hard part is like women's hockey is not at the same structure point as men's hockey. So men's hockey in North America, we have the SPHL, the ECHL, the AHL and the NHL and then countless, you know, CHL teams and and whatnot. We need sort of a feeder system on the women's side as well. But if you can't provide the the finances for these women to play sustainably and to be able to make a living from it. Like, you know, it it is going to start out with one league and hopefully we can grow to the point where we have a feeder league and we have a feeder system because, you know, that's how you get better. That's how the sport of women's hockey will also grow. Um, Because you, I mean, just look at on the men's side, like, yeah, there's AHL players pushing every single day to get to the NHL and pushing these NHLers to have to perform their best every single day, knowing that unless you're Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, um, you know, David Pasternak, like you could be on the chopping block. Like people are, you know, pushing, pushing through and trying to um, make these NHL teams. So it's, it's something that I think is maybe down the road a little bit, but uh, we definitely need a united league, a united front. And then hopefully the next step is having some feeder leagues as well. I think it's difficult, right? Like with the gender gap idea. So like even just you saying like having like the equivalent of an AHL and an NHL. And again, like maybe this is dating myself. I don't know if we're close to this or not, but like, I think it might, I have trouble envisioning that many women electing to stay involved in sports as adult women, when you introduce like having kids and all of that. And that's not to say like, thankfully now there are tons of women who have had kids who continue to be professional athletes. Right. And they are fortunate to have the support staff and just the resilience to deal with all of that. Cause it is a lot to be a parent and a professional athlete. And I just envision it might be more for some women to handle that balance than some men, given the childbearing responsibilities. Like men don't need to breastfeed between periods. Women might need to, right? So it's like, I just, I'm curious, like what's your take on that, right? Cause really that's what we're trying to get to because right now girls graduate, they're 21 and it's like, okay, well I gotta get a job because there's no league. What if there is a league? What does that look like? Do we have a lot of women playing into their like mid thirties? Does it change the family dynamics? Like there's a lot of, as a ripple effect that, that comes with all of this, right? 
Yeah, it, it would change a lot. I mean, look at the CWHL from, you know, the past when it, what, it used to be the NWHL and then it changed over to the CWHL. And like, look at that, like that era of players, like iconic players who played in those leagues for like 15 years. Um, so the thing is, is like the hard part about a, a women's league is that there's going to be what, six teams. So then, you know, the feeder system could be NCAA, it could be U sport. So it could be our university, um, you know, our university track. But then if you're 21 and you don't make one of those teams, so you're done at 21 if you don't make that team and there's only six teams. And then you have, you know, think about the amount of players on both Canada and the US, there's 46 players. So then, you know, you start, you start seeing like, it, it doesn't, the, right now one league, which we need with six teams still isn't the answer to getting this big pool of women to continue to play. So it's tough, right? We need like that in-between league. It's, it's the same with the national program. Like we have U18 and then there's development and then there's, you know, the national team. So now that it's development, I believe it encompasses older athletes um, because it used to be under 22. So now what, when you're 22, you have nowhere to play and you, you lose out on the potential of playing on the national women's team. Um, so we just, I think just needing to kind of rethink how we continue to keep people engaged and involved is going to be crucial. Cause we want people to, we want women to stay involved in sport. Like we know that it, there's a lot of societal demands and pressures for women to just jump right into the workforce after university. Um, so we, we need that, we need that, like we need that AHL league as well. Um, but I obviously one league at a time, you know, can't, can't ask for too much all at once. All of the leagues, um, five leagues. All, yeah. Tomorrow. Five leagues. <laughs> yeah. And MJ is really I happy. Love over that. There. She's super frozen like that. <laughs> <laughs> At least she looks really excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I got you, MJ. Great. You just love it. You're really excited about the topic. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. Sorry, all the kids are deciding to yell downstairs. So, my mom is a business. Seven children. For anyone that's wondering, so it is doable for you moms out there. <laughs> my mom, uh, my mom has uh, two businesses. Uh, one is a preschool, and one is a daycare. And so she, she has one in like the middle portion of our house, and it's the preschool. So it's like Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings, just the mornings. Um, it's been in business for like twenty six years, so it's it's going. I think this might be the last year for it, but I'm like, I told MJ, I'm like, I have to start booking meetings in the afternoons, not when all the kids are being like kittens and wolves down there and like yelling and screaming and singing, let it go. But it's all good. It's all good. Well, that's still the tune, huh? No, I don't know. I just made that up. I have no clue. It's probably in something from Encanto or whatever that. Uh... Have you guys seen that movie? Yeah, I saw it recently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's on yeah. my list. Yeah. All right. What's well, you, okay, wait, wait, wait. Before yeah. you guys, well, you can stop recording, but I have questions. But they're more like you don't need to record. Okay. Them. Do you want me to stop? Okay. Well, thank you so much, Corey, for joining us today. <laughs> Bit of slice. Thank, thank you for having me. It was awesome.